let's say we're sitting down together to discuss how to reach the people of Cherokee County with the gospel. And I were to stand up and, and lay out this plan for you. Let's stay put right where we are. No need to go out and seek anyone out. Uh, let people just come to us. Second, when they do come, let's not focus all that much on appearances. I might wear sweatpants and a dingy t-shirt, hair fix, teeth brush, optional. And uh, when people come, we're going to direct words of condemnation toward them. We, we might even call them snakes. We'll also speak openly and, and sharply against the, the community leaders we know do not have integrity. And, and lastly, we're going to encourage all those to come who, who come, we're going to encourage them to follow someone else. How does that sound? Well, what sounds strange to us worked for John the Baptist. Charles Swindoll, in his commentary on Luke, says this. Look at this quote up on the screen. He broke every ministry-building rule, yet he enjoyed incredible success. The pontiffs and potentates of the day jailed the forerunner and eventually executed him, but Jesus called him the greatest man ever born of a woman. We're going to see why that is the case today and next week. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 3. We're continuing our series through the Gospel of Luke, and today we are moving into the second section of this study. Let's look at it. This is from your outline you received at the beginning of the study. We're moving from Jesus' birth and, and early life to Jesus' preparation for ministry. And, and we will see today, as we see in the other Gospel accounts, that Jesus' ministry begins with a man by the name of John. We learned a little bit about John at the beginning of this study in Luke chapter 1. Remember, we learned that his father, Zechariah, was a priest, and he and his wife, Elizabeth, were advanced in years and childless. And there came a time for Zechariah when he was to enter into the temple to offer incense at the altar in the temple. And when he does, he is visited by Gabriel, God's angelic messenger. And Gabriel tells Zechariah that God has heard their prayer for a child and is going to answer it by giving them a son. And he is not just any son. Zechariah is told that his son will be great before the Lord and will minister like the prophet Elijah, preaching repentance and will prepare the way for the great one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in the first part of chapter 3, Luke returns to John's story. Close to 30 years has passed, and it's time for his short ministry to begin. And while all the gospel writers address John the Baptist and his ministry, Luke's account is unique. He not only gives us details about John's beginnings in Luke 1, but also about his message and ministry in Luke 3. This morning we are going to... Uh, 
peel off and, and tackle a big chunk of Scripture, okay? So, so buckle your seatbelts. We're going to be in verses 1, looking at verses 1 through 20 of Luke chapter 3. And there are several things I want us to examine in this text about John's ministry. Number one, I want us to focus in on the context of John's ministry. The context of John's ministry. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Luke 3. We're told this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituraya, and Trachonitis and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So, here, Luke being an attention to details guy, right? He, he gives us the exact year when John's ministry began. It happened in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. At this time, Pontius Pilate is governor in Judea, and, and Herod is tetrarch in Galilee, and his brother Philip is ruling in Ituraya, in Trachonitis, in Licinius, in Abilene. John's ministry began also during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. It was at this time in history when the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Several things I want you to notice here. Some of you, if you read this passage in advance, you might have glossed over this section thinking, ah, there's not a lot there. Let me show you what we have here. Number one, we learn from this passage, this event is historical. It's historical. That's important. John the Baptist is a historical character. His, his ministry took place in a real place, in real time, in history. During the, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate is governor and Herod is tetrarch, and that, that word means ruler of a province of Galilee, John's life and ministry is history. Something else we learn here from this list of names is that John's ministry began in a dark and evil time. These leaders listed here are corrupt, wicked, and immoral men. Ligon Duncan said this in this passage. He says, Luke gives us a rogues gallery of the biggest villains of the age. These are men that already have a reputation for being corrupt and wicked. And many of these men are going to be involved in the murder of John and later of Jesus. John will be beheaded. Jesus put to death by crucifixion. Tiberius, first we see here, was the, the Roman emperor at the time. If you do a little research on him, you will learn that he is remembered for being a vicious and infamous leader. Pontius Pilate, you know him, right? He was more concerned with power and position and prestige than what was right and good and sent Christ, the one whom he said was innocent, to the cross. He killed him due to political pressure. 
Herod the Tetrarch's dad was the, the famous baby killer. We, we learn about at the beginning of Matthew, Herod was a real sweetheart. He had, a, had an affair and steals away his brother Philip's wife. He's criticized by John the Baptist, has him arrested and later killed by beheading to impress a girl. Notice two other familiar names in the list are these Jewish leaders, Annas and Caiaphas. While there was only to be one high priest, notice both are mentioned. The system had really gotten out of whack in this day. Annas is the former high priest. He is like the high priest emeritus. We learned from Josephus, that, that great early historian, that Annas was in power from A.D. 6 to 15. And after him, his sons and other relatives held the office in almost an unbroken chain for years to come. Caiaphas is Annas's son-in-law. There's so much respect by the family for Annas and other religious leaders that they just allow him to keep this title as high priest. And Caiaphas is the high priest during John and Jesus' earthly ministry. Both Annas and Caiaphas had been corrupted, we learn, by Roman rule. They desired power. They despised any threat to their power. And they would lie, cheat, and kill to maintain it. And they do. They are directly responsible for the unlawful and unjust wicked trials and conviction and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is during this bleak time when John's ministry begins. One more thing about the context here of John's ministry. Notice we're told that the word of the Lord came to John at this time while John is in the wilderness. Nobody really knows much about John. He's in obscurity. Yet, Notice God passes over all these well-known leaders to speak to John, which is true to form to God, right? We have him throughout Scripture using the unlikely and the obscure for his great kingdom purposes. He is making himself strong in weakness, and we see that here in John. We don't know much about John from his birth up until what we're told here in, in Luke chapter 3. We know nothing of the training he received, though we, we know the message that he delivers when he comes out of the wilderness is right and true. We're told by Luke that he had been schooled by God in the wilderness. The Word of God came to him there, and then he explodes onto the scene with a powerful message and important ministry, which we're going to look at in just a moment. But before we do, notice what we learn here. Right at the beginning of this passage, we learn, here it comes, point. In the bleakest of times... God is preparing to do the best of works. How about that? When, when crooks and crime bosses occupied places of prominence in society, both politically and religiously, God is preparing an unlikely prophet in obscurity to usher in his kingdom and prepare the way for the true king, God's forever king, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. And get this, folks, God is at work in this way today. He has not stopped. In the bleakest of times, God does the greatest of works. No matter what happens, no matter what has happened throughout history, God has never stopped building a kingdom of redeemed people for his purposes, 
for their joy and for his own glory. And one day he's going to complete the work when he sends his forever king back, his forever king is returning, the Lord Jesus, to perfect this work, finish this work, and there is nothing God's enemies can do to stop it. It doesn't matter who occupies the places of prominence in this world. God is fulfilling his will by building his kingdom. Therefore, here comes the application. We should not lose heart, but take part in this kingdom work. Just like John. Just like John. That's the context of John's ministry. Now let's discuss the summary of John's ministry in verses 3 through 6. Luke gives us a nice look at John's ministry in a nutshell. He says here, And he went into all the region around the Jordan. Jordan's pretty long. Uh, many commentators believe he could have been ministering up in the area of Galilee, down to Judea. Many believe he, he uh, baptized Jesus down the Jordan. In, in the area of Judea. So he's, he went around ministering around the region, around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Notice his message. He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This verse has been terribly misinterpreted by some. Many fail to understand John the Baptist's ministry in connection with Jesus. And some believe John is teaching about baptismal regeneration here, that belief that says one is saved by physically passing through the waters of baptism. That is not what Luke is telling us here about John's ministry. John did not view his baptism as being a means by which one is saved. Get this. He viewed his baptism as being a sinner's acknowledgement of an, identify, and an identification with other sinners. It's an acknowledgement of one's sin and need for the saving work that Christ came to do. That's what John's baptism was. Look at what H.A. Ironside said about it. Look at this quote up on the screen. So when John the Baptist called upon the people to be baptized, confessing their sins, he was telling them that they were lost, that they deserved to die, that they could not make atonement for their own sins, but he told them of one who could. Their baptism was the outward acknowledgement of their lost condition in order that they may see their need of a Savior. John was sent by God before Jesus to do this work, to show people their sin and their need of forgiveness. He came preaching repentance. He came to prepare the way for Jesus by calling for all men to turn from their sins and look toward the one who is coming. Look at verse 4, a little more about John's ministry. As it is written in the, in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Here's what John came to do, according to the words of Isaiah, a great prophet. This is what John came to do. He came to level the field. There were some in this day 
who thought they were more favored by God because of the family they were born into, their, their pedigree and their position in society, their, their outward acts of religious devotion. Those people looked down on tax collectors and various kinds and types of sinners in their community. The religious leaders of this day, they, they turned their nose toward those people. They viewed them as being a million miles away from a place at the table in God's kingdom. Well, get this. John came to show them that they're all a million miles away because of sin. He also came not only to bring the lofty down, but he came to lift the lowly up. He came to show that those who felt as if they were beyond saving, he came to bring hope to those sinners by preaching that Salvation is through Christ alone. By repenting of sin and looking to Him alone. And He came to bring the self-righteous to their knees, fulfilling Isaiah's words. It says, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. John came to straighten the crooked and make the rough places level. He came, as Ironside said, to bring all men to one common plane, the recognition of their sinnership. He, he came to show all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. He came to reveal the straight path back into a right relationship with God by pointing people forward to God's salvation through His Son, Jesus. John came to reveal to all mankind their sinfulness and their need for Jesus. That's his ministry in a nutshell. And get this, that's a message we all need to hear. And believers, that's the message that we need to share today because there are many in our day-to-day, -day, like there were in John's day, who don't see a need for saving. Because many so-called churches have left out sin, even though there's not a page you can turn in Scripture where you do not see sin on display. They think they're far beyond. They, they think that they're uh, in no need of saving. And there are some who view themselves as far beyond hope because of the life they've lived up to this point. If I'm speaking to you, listen, John's message is for you. Get this. The fact that Jesus came revealed to all of us that we are in need of forgiveness and salvation and that forgiveness and salvation is possible through forsaking sin and trusting in our only hope of being made right with God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ came and the fact that he came reveals to us, we learn from John's message here, Get this, that no one is too good and no one is too far gone. Christ came for both. He came to show that there's no righteous deeds, there's, there's no amount of religious devotion that you can do on your own to earn a place at the table. And He also came for those who feel that they are too far beyond saving. He came for both. He came because no one is too good and no one is too far gone. Believers, that's to be our message in our ministry today. We, like John, are to go out to this lost world and make straight paths to God through Christ. We're to bring the lofty low and we're to lift the lowly up with this gospel message. 
We're to show that we are all a million miles away from a right standing with the holy God because of our sin. But we're also to let all people know that through forsaking our sin and through Christ, we can be brought a million miles away to the throne of God. We can be ushered into the presence of holy God through his son, Jesus Christ. Well, that's a message to share, isn't it? Wow. There's a lot to learn from John's message and ministry for us today. Luke has given us the context of John's ministry, the summary of John's ministry. Notice also Luke describes for us the manner of John's message. Look at verses 7 through 9. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I hear giggles already. He wasn't seeker sensitive, was he? I mean, that's what it means. For those of you saying ouch today, they were saying ouch in that day. They come in great number to, to hear from John, and he calls them snakes. He doesn't sugarcoat things. He doesn't beat around the bush with them. He confronts them head on with their sin, like snakes crawling out of their holes, fleeing from danger. John questions them, you snakes, why have you come? Who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, we know that there were some in that crowd who were not there for the right reasons. We just mentioned this group. There were some self-righteous religious leaders who thought they had earned a place at God's table because of who their dad was, because of their pedigree and position in society. And John puts them in their proper place by addressing the condition of their heart and by looking at the fruits or lack thereof in their life. He says in verse 8, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. I love what John does here. Imagine there were some impressive people coming out to hear from him. And instead of catering to these people, giving them a message they want to hear some do that based upon how much they give and who they are. John, instead, he gives them the message God wants them to hear. He tells them, the family you were born into, your position in society doesn't mean a thing to God. God's the one that gave it to you. He's the one who places people where they are, gives them positions that they have. If he wanted to, he could raise up stones to be the children of Abraham. What else you got? Right? Don't cling to the family you were born into, to the status you've been given. See your sinfulness, forsake that sin, look to the Lord for salvation, bear fruit that comes as a result of a changed heart. Now, when he talks about bearing fruit, he's not talking about works righteousness. He's not saying you earn a right place with the Lord by what you do, but he's saying you give your life to the Lord and you live rightly for Him in light of that new life that you have. Don't give lip service to repentance. Some do that. They think salvation is a magical prayer you pray, a magical aisle you walk down, magical waters you pass through. That's not salvation. You don't give lip service to salvation. Listen, you give your life in repentance and live your life in light of that repentance. 
You don't give lip service to repentance. You give your life in repentance and live your life in light of that repentance. That's what John is calling for. Look at verse 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John tells us here there are certain trees that appear to be a part of the forest, but they prove that they are not a part of the forest because they're fruitless. John says those trees will be cut down and tossed from the others into the fire. That is fire of judgment, folks. Great illustration for God's kingdom. It's very, very simple. Listen, there are people, there were people in John's day who were in the crowd, numbered among those looking on in faith, but were not a part of the faithful. There are crowds where we're gathered in places like this today, here and elsewhere, who though they appear to be with God's people, they are not a part of God's kingdom people and will one day be separated from God's kingdom people, cast into the fires of God's judgment. That's the illustration, like it or not. Why? Because their hearts have not been changed. They don't belong to the Lord. They, they have not forsaken their sin. They have not truly repented of their sin. They're giving lip service to repentance. They're not trusting in Christ alone for salvation. How will we know who they are? John tells us we know them by their fruit. If you want to know where someone is or isn't spiritually, if you want to know where you are or where you're not spiritually, ask yourself, is he or she, am I, are we bearing fruits keeping with repentance? Is there a true forsaking of sin, personal trust in the person and work of Christ alone for salvation? And is that repentance genuine and evident in the way he or she, I or we live? Have hearts been changed? And is that change of heart seen in what one says and does, the actions of one's hands and feet? John, like a good preacher here, he, he not only just gives us this teaching in general, but he, he, he gives specific examples as well, examples of types of fruit that should be seen. In the life of a believer. Notice the next point, the application from John's message. He'll, he'll just give us a few points of application here. There's obviously more, but look at it. Verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered, he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. What are fruits in keeping with repentance? What, what outward acts should be evident in the lives of God's people? One, they should be benevolent. Now, can non-believers be benevolent? Yes, for the wrong reasons. But John is telling those in his audience that, that believers are to be benevolent for the right reasons. And while it may take some work to determine where benevolent people are spiritually, it should not take much work at all to tell where someone who is not is. Believers who have been blessed by God are called to be a blessing 
to others. And you ask why? Well, because believers know there's nothing they've been given that's not been given to them by God. And because, get this, believers, they realize that in Christ they have been given infinitely more than they deserve or could hope to repay in salvation. This, according to John, should lead believers to be a kind, compassionate, generous, and giving people. Believers, ask yourself, how am I doing in this area of my life? Are you benevolent? Not just with, with the money you give, but the time you give, the investment that you make in people. And based upon your answer to that question, ask yourself this, what should that tell me about me? And I'll leave it there and I'll let the Holy Spirit deal with you. Look at verse 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. John says here, truly repentant people, people whose hearts belong to the Lord, they show integrity in the workplace, they treat people with dignity and respect, and are content with the gifts that God has given them, not envying anyone. They don't use their position and power for dishonest gain. They do not take advantage of the weak, but deal with people in an honest and loving way. Believers, ask yourself this question. How do I conduct myself in the workplace or in the home? Would you be embarrassed if we were to show you in your place of business or in your home up on the screens on Sunday morning? It's who you are here, who you are there. Are you thankful for the blessings God has given you? And are you in turn being a blessing to others? John says those who have forsaken sin, those who have given their lives up and over to the Lord, they live fruitful lives. Hearts that have been changed result in a changed life. Changed hearts result in changed lives. It's that simple. That's the application from John's message. So we have discussed here the, the context of John's ministry, the summary of John's ministry, the manner of John's message, and the application from John's message. Now let's talk about the focus of John's message and ministry. Look at verse 15. As the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Notice, the focus of the crowd is on John. 
They were, they were questioning in their hearts whether John's the guy. Is this the guy? Is this the Messiah, the one, the God's forever king, the one we've been promised who, who was going to come to us? And John sets them straight quickly by redirecting the focus to the one he is focused upon, the Lord Jesus Christ. John was Christ-centered in his ministry and message, and so should we. He says, all I'm doing is offering you a baptism of repentance to prepare you for the one to come who is mightier than I. The, the one to come who, whom I don't even qualify to untie his sandals. John says, of the lowliest of tasks one can do for an individual, I don't qualify to do for this individual. He says, all of you are going to eventually know him too, one way or another. For those of you who believe on Him, you will be changed by Him through the work of His Holy Spirit inside. You're going to be gathered with Him, to Him, with His people. And for those of you who reject Him, He says, you will eventually know Him as well because you will be condemned by Him. In verse 17, John uses the, the imagery of a reaper. Remember when we were in the book of Ruth, I told you about the process of winnowing when they would when they would reap the harvest there was a time when the wheat was to be separated from that outward layer the chaff in a process called winnowing the reaper would would uh, reap the harvest bring it to a place called the threshing floor which was an elevated spot where the winds would be the strongest. And with the fork, this, this reaper would just toss the wheat up into the air and the wind would separate the chaff from the wheat and the wheat, being heavier, would fall back down on the threshing floor and that outer chaff would be taken and tossed into the fire because it's useless. John explains here, Jesus is going to do a similar work with all the peoples of the earth. Those trusting in him will be gathered to him, while those who are not will be cast from him and condemned by him. And, and some hear that message today, and they're, they're angered by it. And in unbelief, they say, I don't believe that. How could a good God do that? Condemned to hell for all eternity. Many believe that's bad news, but notice that wasn't the perspective of Luke. Look at verse 18. We're told, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news. This gospel message is good news to the people. Luke argues that John's message of Christ's actions as both Savior and Judge is good news. You know the question that people often ask today, how can a good God condemn sinners to hell for all eternity? That's a very, very modern Question. That was not a question that many, if any, were asking in John's day. The common question in John's day was this, how can a condemned sinner ever be saved? Many in this day were asking, what must one do to be right with God? Many were asking, how can a just God pardon wicked sinners and remain righteous and just? That's the question that Paul is answering in, in Romans. The answer is found in John's message here. He can do it because he sent his son. That's why 
Luke refers to John's message as good news. This is good news, folks. John's message is good news. There is pardon. There is rescue for sinners through the righteous life and substitutionary death of King Jesus. One song I love that we sing is Jesus Messiah. I love that song. And in it, we're told that Jesus is the rescue for sinners. We're in need of rescue. And God has already executed His rescue plan by sending His Son. And through Him, we can be made righteous. We can be brought back in. We can be restored to God. That is good news. And that's why John says, don't look at me. All I can do is address the problem that we are sinners in need of saving. I can't provide the solution. The solution is coming and the one I'm pointing you toward, King Jesus. Well, before we close, one last point. Notice the response to John's message and ministry. Look at verses 19 through 20. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, boy, John really gave it to him, didn't he? He didn't discriminate. Added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So in addition to John calling out sins of the Jewish religious leaders and just people in general coming to hear this message of sin and repentance, he calls out Herod for his inappropriate relationship that he was having with his brother's wife and for all the other evils he had done. Well, Herod unfortunately, did not respond like some in repentance and faith and with baptism, but instead he responded by having John arrested and locked up. Herod rejected John's message. He arrested John, locked him up, eventually put him to death. But while he did not approve of John, there is another ruler who would come later who did approve of John. The Lord Jesus Christ said this of John the Baptist, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Wow. Jesus' words. With that statement, he's approving of John's ministry and of his message. He's truly great. Why? Because his message is true. He taught on the universal sinfulness of man, man's need for repentance, the exclusivity of Christ, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and his focus, John's whole focus is on point because it's all on Jesus. He served God in humility. He redirected people. He was like an arrow pointing to Jesus. That's the way our life should be as well. When people look at us, they should be directed to him. That's what John did. That's why he was truly great. And Christ praised John for his message and ministry. And many believed this message and benefited from John's ministry. Many responded in repentance and faith and were saved. But there were others who rejected that message and were condemned. What's your response 
going to be to this message today? Have you responded to it? Do you believe it? Jesus approved of it. God clearly tells us this message, John's message is consistent with the rest of Scripture, that we are sinners in need of saving, and that salvation has been provided through the person and work of Christ alone. Have you responded to this message? Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? Or have you rejected this message directly or maybe even indirectly? Maybe you just haven't responded to it at all. That's a response. Not responding is a response. Jesus has come. And the reason why he has come is to provide the only way of escape for you and for me from the judgment that is coming that is deserved because of our sinfulness. He has come. He has provided a way for us to be forgiven and restored to God. He has provided it through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. It's truly good news. The best news that's ever been spoken. Will you respond to this good news today by turning from your sin and making God's Son your Lord? Would you respond by forsaking sin and bowing your knee to King Jesus? I pray that you would today. Let's pray together.